You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. I think my mother felt it was a kind of grim future <laughs> in that there was nothing else for this poor little fat three-year-old. And she introduced me, to, you know, to the joy of opera, really, and um, I was hooked. Renowned opera diva Beverly Sills today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Well, any list of the greatest operatic singers of modern times has to include somewhere near the top Beverly Sills. The statuesque soprano was an audience favorite for decades. Time magazine once featured her on the cover and called her America's Queen of Opera. By the late 1960s, the singer, whose nickname from childhood was Bubbles, also became a very popular TV talk show guest. Everybody loved her. But along with her on-stage success came personal crises. Her daughter Muffy was born deaf and with multiple sclerosis. Her son Bucky, born two years later, had severe mental disabilities. In 1987, Beverly Sills wrote her autobiography. And that's when I had a chance to meet Bubbles. So here now, from 1987, Beverly Sills. It struck me as I'm reading especially the early chapters of your book. You sound so focused from from your earliest years. Did you always know that you wanted to be an opera singer? Yes. I think I, not just an opera singer, an opera star. Big difference. I mean, I, uh, opera became uh, a passion and later an obsession with me. There was just nothing else I ever wanted to do. Nothing. Um, I, I frequently... Did tell the story, uh, you know, to friends at the, who ask that wonderful, what's the first opera you ever saw and can you remember it? Uh, yes, it was Lacme with Lily Pons. And, um, I, this woman came on stage and I just decided that I was going to be exactly like Lily. I was going to sing like Lily and I was going to look like Lily and act like Lily. The only problem was <laughs> that even at eight or nine years old, I was four inches taller than she was and outweighed by 20 pounds. But it never occurred to me. I mean, I was going to be an opera star. It actually had very little to do with Lily herself, who became a great friend of mine, as it had to do with the fact that Lily Pons was a superstar. She was in the movies, and she was beautiful, and she sang so beautifully. She, that was going to be me. It's so rare, though, that you get a chance to follow through on your childhood dreams. So many of us dreamt dreams of becoming an astronaut, or we wanted to become a cowboy, or whatever. And so few of us actually wind up, it strikes me, in the, in the, in the position that you thought you would be in as a child. Well, that's my mother and my father, too, although my father more so with the boys. Um, when my oldest brother was no more than six or seven, he was already called Doc. And indeed, he is a, a, a practicing physician today with eight specialties. He'll never be able to use all his specialties. Um, the other boy, when we were in the Little League baseball teams, he was always the treasurer. And so my father would always say, this one is going to go into business. And indeed, he just retired from one of the largest publishing empires in this country as chairman. Um, and in my case, I think because I was a girl and European families don't really worry about what happens to girls because they've got to get married. 
I mean, it's it's just a given. Uh, my, I think my mother felt it was a kind of grim future <laughs> in that there was nothing else for this poor little fat three-year-old. You know, there's got to be something in her life. And she introduced me, to, you know, to the joy of opera, really. She kept playing her collection of Galacorci recordings, and um, I was hooked. And I really, she gave me the dream. My mother, even to this day, she doesn't think there's any dream that's too far-fetched if you're not willing to work hard for it and just keep going after it, you'll get it. Now yourself, with the hindsight of these years, and now you're an adult and you're a parent yourself, looking back, if you had been in your mother's place, would you have allowed your daughter Bubbles to do what you did Oh, that's hard to say because I was, you know, we're, we're brought up in, in different eras. But I have to say probably yes, because by the time she allowed me to do those things, she already knew it was a passion. It was too late to stop it. Uh, it was not, um, I was not a dilettante young girl. Um, and I was very serious about my singing and fluent in my languages. I was a very good pianist. I had worked very hard, and I think... Um, and he also, don't forget what the upbringing was like. It was so totally different. My father said to me when I was a baby, maybe seven or eight, your mother doesn't drink, your mother doesn't smoke, and you're not going to either. Well, at seven or eight, those ideas had never even crossed my mind. But I swear to you, apart from di dipping a sugar cube into sacramental wine over Passover, I never had a drink of anything until I met my husband, who led me very quickly down the garden path. No, no. <laughs> but my first glass of honest-to-God wine was with my husband. I had, and of course, I never smoked, uh, although years later, after I retired, I once tried a cigar, which I liked a lot. But that's a whole other story. Um, but the wine was a you know, revelation to me. But I had never tasted alcohol. My father had said no. And it never occurred to me to start to, to go against what he had told me. So my mother knew about uh, how I would react in the various circumstances that she uh, set me free into. And um, I don't think she worried the way a parent worries today because we have become a much more permissive society. And uh, it, it's would I worry if I sent my daughter out on trips like that today? You bet I would. Um, despite the fact that I would hope that I've raised her with a set of values. But in, in, in those times, I mean, it, it never crossed anybody's mind that uh, anything wrong could happen. If your home had been filled not with opera music, but with jazz or honky-tonk or whatever. Country Western. Country Western. Yes, that's my favorite. Would you have grown up in that, in that particular genre of music? Is, is music your destiny? I think if if my mother had not played it in the early days, the chances are that um, I would maybe later have developed a passion for some kind of music, you know. But uh, I, I doubt that I would have had a career at all. And I think my voice would have stayed undeveloped. And um, I would have been one of those women who said, I probably could have had a very good singing career, but I got married instead. Um, there would be no way for me ever to find out otherwise. We, we didn't have the kind of money that would give me singing and piano lessons just because we want to finish off our daughter. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way in our family. It was a great struggle uh, to get the lessons paid for even and to convince my father that women who went on the stage were not loose women who, God forbid, changed the color of their hair. Um, so there, there would just have been no way without my mother giving me that dream and being able 
to wrap this rather domineering, uh, strong man around her finger. I mean, he, he, he spoke with the most enormous periods at the ends of every sentence, except when he was speaking to my mother, who with that little pink face and a little giggly way, uh, very artistic, very fey, uh, was able to make him do anything that she wanted and, and in some cases even make him think it was his own idea. Did she teach you that? No, she, um, no, I can't, I was never able to do what my mother could do. A, I'm a big woman and she was small and it doesn't, you can't do the big women can't do that. It's, it's a great disadvantage, you know, to be a five feet, eight and a half, 145 pound youngster as I was. And you walk in a room, it's hard to be anything but intimidated by this, <laughs> this creature that comes in. My mother was totally still is. I mean, yesterday, uh, we were with her, oh, a whole bunch of us, all the kids got together. And she sat in the middle like like, like a queen, you know, or everybody just wanting to make her laugh and, and entertain her and amuse her. But, um, I, no, I, I just think my life would have been totally different with a different mother. Is there one period or era of your life that, 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 that you particularly cherish the memory of? Strangely enough, and I know it sounds like Miss Pollyanna here, but it, it it's really the one I'm going through at the moment um, and always has been. I never can find a better time in my past than the one I'm having at the moment. Even with the problems I've had, and I certainly have had my share of them, when things were at their bleakest uh, with my children, um, I can't honestly say that I ever regretted having my children or would ever have chosen different children. I, I still say if they lined up my two with a thousand other kids, I'd still pick these two. Uh, I would like my son to live in less pain. That would please me a whole lot. Um, but given the actual choice of those two human beings, I would still take them. So even at the, the depth of my miseries uh, over their problems, um, I nevertheless was, was ecstatic to have them. I, you know, I don't uh, allow myself the luxury of uh, dwelling on what could have been. Um, it's really what is, and um, I've come to terms with that. Um, I have a very good time. I'm in, I'm 50, I'll be 58 in a couple of weeks. I'm enjoying this age enormously. I, I wouldn't tell you uh, that I didn't have a good time at 38. Uh, but I also had a good time at 48. Um, I think to waste a, a single moment of our lives uh, whining and, as my grandma used to say, fetching is such a waste of precious time that I, I simply don't allow myself to do it. I haven't got the time for it. And I think it's such a drag on other people to whine. It's so boring. So I, I try to have a good time uh, wherever I am, what I'm doing. After this short break, the personal battles the Beverly Hills fought against birth defects. Now back to my 1987 interview with Beverly Sills. Does it ever bother you that that your children and uh, whatever uh, troubles and, and challenges that they may face have become public because you are a public person? Well, it was a choice, really. Um, in uh, years ago, maybe 20 years ago, when my career was really taking off, I was asked by every charitable organization to join them, put my name on their stationery. They don't want my time and my 
money. They just want my name. And I thought that was strange because if the cause was good enough, why wouldn't you want my time and money? So I never signed on. When the March of Dimes came to see me, they had conquered polio. It was the only charitable organization that set out to conquer a disease and did it. Um, they were switching over to the cause of birth defects. And they had come to me um, because one of the doctors in Boston who works very closely with the March of Dimes, suggested he had helped me with my children, uh, said that I might be interested in participating since I had these children with problems. And when they came to see me, they made it quite clear from the beginning that they would want my name, my time, my energy, and my money, um, and really wanted me to take over the national chairmanship, not the honorary chairmanship, but actually traveling for them and, and speaking to other parents about problems of, of families and the children themselves with birth defects. Um, I said I have to think about it, and Peter and I, my husband and I, talked about it and said that we would have to go public with the children. Now, I never hid the children, but nobody ever asked me about them. They, people always say, how many children do you have? You tell them. How old are they? You tell them. You're certainly not going to volunteer any information. It's my personal life, and it's none of anybody's business. Um, and I realized in this particular case, I would have to go public with it. And we decided that because it is so devastating and because um, unless you've had handicapped children of your own, you really do not know what a devastating experience it is. You really can't know. Um, that if I could help one other couple uh, get through a difficult time, letting them know that they are not alone, that there are other people in this situation, um, that it would be worth doing it. And so we went public with it. Um, I'm proud of my daughter. She's a, a, a person who can do everything that anybody else can do except here. She's bright. She's attractive. She has boyfriends. She's crackerjack tennis player, sails her own boat, earns her own living, owns her own apartment, is an artist, um, is leading a very full life. So when I talk about her, I talk about her in very positive um, terms, not uh, as as... Well, in my eyes, she's perfect, so I, I don't look at her in any other way. Um, and in terms of the boy, that's totally different. He is so multiply handicapped that um, I am able to discuss uh, birth defects on, on several levels. So um, I try very hard not to let it become maudlin because they're not. it's not a maudlin part of my life. It's a rather inspirational part of my life. The courage of both my children is awesome. And um, if, if I can get that message across to other couples who already have children with birth defects, then I'm serving a useful purpose. So I, I think it was worthwhile. It was painful at times, handled by wrong people, but it was worth coming out of the out of the closet with it. One quick question, if I may shift gears, just before we close, I'm running out of time real fast. Is America classical music illiterate? Do we, uh, do we as a culture not know enough about classical music, do you think, or is it just my perception? I think we know as much as any European knows. It's a, it's a myth that uh, only the Europeans know classical music. We're, we're probably one of the most discerning audiences in the world today. We're the biggest classical record buyers. I think maybe Japan buys more, but uh, the opportunities to attend performances are, are better here for us. 25 or 30 years ago, this country was a cultural desert. Uh, we now have opera companies, ballet companies, symphony orchestras, museums, 
libraries available to to us in in every even tiny communities have their upper workshops have amateur orchestras no i think i think we're doing very well we have always suffered from an inferiority complex and um i think the public is beginning to realize that they're quite discerning that they don't they don't need anyone to tell them when something is good when a painting is beautiful um they're getting much more positive about their ideas i i if, if we just have two minutes i would uh-huh. like i saw a, a, a television interview in uh, in a city in california that's just opened up a new performing arts center woman was being interviewed um that uh, and criticized that this public doesn't know it applauds in between movements and she looked him right in the eye and she said so what Mr. Perlman played one of the most extraordinary cadences I've ever heard and I decided that somebody should let him know that we that I from my point of view I'd never heard anything like it she said I don't recall getting any instructions from Mozart when I'm allowed to applaud and when I'm not who are you to give me instructions she said if it says Mozart would prefer that there was silence between the two movements I'll try to obey Mr. Mozart she said but don't you tell me when something is good and it isn't good I applaud when I'm having a terrific time and I don't applaud when I'm not I thought to myself at last <laughs> at last if that's the public boy is our our stand is going to soar and it, it tickled me no end i just love it we're not the performing arts are not for the snobs they're for the people who go and have a ball it's great i'm out of time I'm Thank, sorry. thanks very talk, much talk, talk, the woman never shut <laughs> <laughs> beverly sills died in 2007 she was 78 muffy died in 2016 at the age of 57. And you can find easy Amazon links to Beverly Sills' book and music at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure to listen to my 1988 interview with another opera singer, also a movie star and TV game show panelist, Kitty Carlisle Hart. Groucho was the worrier. He would come to me all the time and say, with a deadpan expression, Is this funny? and say a joke. And I'd say, no, Groucho, that's not funny. And he'd go away, hang his head, come back two minutes later and say, well, is this funny? And my 1999 interview with perhaps a future opera star, the young Charlotte Church. I got to sing for the Pope. I got to sing for President Clinton and President Bush. And I got to sing for the royal family. It's t- quite hard to comprehend because mm-hmm. everything's happened so fast. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my interview with the young man who turned his foreigner's naivete into a very successful comedy career. My 1987 interview with Yakov Smirnov. Somebody called me and said, come on over, we'll chew the fat. I said, yeah, that sounds like necking with Russian women or something. <laughs> oh, man. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.